to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to continue our ongoing faculty spotlight series, a series we're calling Office Hours, with a conversation with Professor Tony Irving. Tony is a professor of practice here at the Darden School of Business, and we recorded this conversation right before the end of 2021. Tony has a diverse and varied background. She's done many things. She's taught English at Notre Dame. Uh, She's worked in politics in the state of Illinois. Uh, She's also, as noted, a professor here at the Darden School of Business. And we talk about her story, her background, what led her to Darden, the classes she's teaching, what she enjoys about working with business school students. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about life inside the classroom here at the Darden School of Business, this episode is essential listening. A quick note, we did record this conversation via Zoom, and the audio is at times a little bit spotty, uh, but the conversation is so good, uh, we wanted to share it anyway. So be advised, Um, hopefully that will not keep you or deter you from listening to the episode. And without further ado, here's my interview, Professor Tony Irvin. Tony, thank you so much for joining us for this Office Hours installment. Thanks for having me. All right, well, we always start with the same same first question. One, how how are you doing? How are things going? Things are going crazy as usual. We stayed super busy here at Darden. I just um, yesterday was the last day of class for Q two, so I'm about to go into full grading momentum and um, and finalizing some of the course material for uh, the spring. All right, and I know you're <laughs> teaching a lot this year. We're going to talk about your classes. Um, as we get into this. But first, let's st- set the stage a bit. Uh, let's learn a little bit more about you. So tell us, high level, who are you? What's your background? Tony Irving, I am uh, born and raised in Philadelphia. I actually am, uh, I did undergrad here at UVA. Uh, went off and um, did some time in banking. I did some academia work at Notre Dame some government. I've done a lot of things before coming back almost full circle here to um, Charlottesville again to Darden. So what I'll say is that I am a academic, social impact, government professor, private equity consultant. <laughs> that is a mouthful, Tony. Does it all fit neatly onto a link, LinkedIn profile or a resume? I think so. I think so. It makes all sense together when you kind of get the flow, right, on a page. Absolutely. So you mentioned it's been a busy quarter for you with teaching. Uh, What what do you teach here at Darden? So I teach a range of things. Um, This quarter, I uh, just taught a class called um, Nonprofit Management that I just developed, and um, which is an awesome course. It's field-based, and the students learn a lot about nonprofits, but then they get to go out into the Charlottesville community and work with local nonprofits in a consulting capacity in terms of helping them build capacity, help them with different issues and so forth that they have. So the final reports on that were yesterday, which was awesome. Uh, I am also teaching the ethics and literature class, um, which has been a wonderful experience, uh, especially since I have a PhD in English literature. But the ethics, you know, discussion is so important, I think, more so now than ever. And it's great to be in a space where you can really um, be thoughtful about it and thoughtful about the issues. And so it allows the students to think about really important issues in governance that can seem a little nebulous at times and also open up their brains to some kind of creative thinking. And so 
it's a really special uh, space to be in. Uh, in addition to that, I'll be teaching come January a course on ESG, environmental social governance, which I'm super psyched about. And, uh, and another course I teach is called Getting in the Room Where It Happens. And it's really about helping people um, navigate their careers in the corporate environment. Um, and of course, it's pulled from, you know, my favorite show, Hamilton, the title. Well, you've taught full-time MBA students and you also teach executive MBA students as well. Um, how have you enjoyed you know, toggling back and forth between those two programs? because it's, it's important I think that um, you know what's awesome about the residential program is that a lot of times people are trying to make a total pivot and so they get this broad-based education they get to really be hunkered down with other people and test out what their theories are what their plans their goals etc and it's like a rebirth um, what I love about executive MBA is that people are really noodling on their future trajectory and, um, and there's opportunities just to think about how to navigate in their current roles and whether or not, you know, they do need to think about a strategy longer term to shift somewhere else. But you also get so much more experience from the executive MBAs to help round out some of the things that you're talking about. So, uh, and then it's an altogether different schedule and people are balancing a great deal. So, you know, I have a great deal of respect for the executive MBA um, people for coming in and, and clearly finding that this is a worthwhile but difficult process, right? Very much a full plate. I think all of the students, when they get to the end of that experience, they look back on the 21 months. First of all, they say thanks to all the many people who made it possible for them to participate in the program. It takes a, a village, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, um, there's this incredible feeling of potential that students have after balancing all these things. And I would say this is true for Darden students generally. You know, you, you, you've worked hard. You've, you've put a lot of energy into your learning experience. And at the conclusion, you really do have that feeling of, of accomplishment. Well, Tony, I want to – oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one of the things that I tell the students, the residential students in particular, is that it always seems really stressful, you know, to balance all of those things. But in, you know, they'll look back on it and say that this is really the best time of their lives. And, you know, it only gets more, um, more pieces thrown into the puzzle in terms of the balance. And so when else will you have a cohort of brilliant, interesting, wonderful human beings that you get to be around sort of 24-7 in an engaged way that's like-minded and all those kinds of connections just get harder the further you get up in your career. So it's a moment that's both difficult and worthwhile and worth savoring. You mentioned earlier you have a PhD in literature and I want to talk a little bit about that uh, right now. What attracted you to literature? Uh, were you always a books person? was a fourth grade teacher and um, she used to get, I don't know how many, if I'm dating myself too much, but there used to be this highlights magazine where you could order books. It's pre-Amazon, right? And my mom had this thing where she said that I could order as many books as I wanted as long as um, I had finished the books from the month before. And so somehow I had my um, self, I had this thought in myself that um, I was getting over on my mother, that I was forcing her to buy more books than she wanted to. Um, if I'd read so many and then up the ante and up the ante and see how much I could milk her for these books. And so I think my mom um, is the original Jedi. Um, but, but um, so, you know, I just had a love for reading and, um, and just did so much of it. And so when I came to college, I actually had intended to major in business, 
But then I, I, you know, I had an epiphany that college is this amazing opportunity to be a broad-based liberal arts, and I can always do business. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to really dive into what makes me happy, and then I'm going to balance it out by doing internships in the summer and banking. And so that's how I um, ensured that, you know, I would not go hungry. So the practical side uh, of things, but you ultimately decided to stay with the English lit path. Um, talk to us about you know how you made that decision. You said I'd like to be a professor. Well, it didn't happen immediately. Um, I was in a uh, a small um, modern studies program at, at UVA, and everybody was going to get the PhD. And I remember my advisor saying, "Everyone's asked for these letters of recommendation except you. Why haven't you asked?" And I was like, "I'm not trying to take the vow of poverty." And, um, and so I actually took a job right out of college as a financial analyst. And I was working for what is now um, Wells Fargo, but you know, all the banking was PMB, Core States, First Union, Wachovia, and, and moving up. And I did that for two and some two years and some change. And um, you know, my grandmother died. And you know how when there's a death, it, it causes you to really be reflective about your life. And I said, you know, yeah, I can make a lot of money and, and this is energizing on a certain level, but is it fulfilling? And so I left the bank, applied to PhD programs, and, uh, and in the interim, I did some um, healthcare work, some uh, public affairs for a Medicaid managed care company, and, um, and then I went off and did a PhD. That eventually takes you to Notre Dame, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how did you end up at Notre Dame, and what was that experience like? I'd always had a thing for Chicago. Um, you know, in some of the novels I've read, there's a, a novel passing and in the beginning there in Chicago and there's, you know, just all these scenes of things in Chicago. And um, when I went to the interview, um, I found out that a, a number of the faculty actually lived in Chicago. It's about an hour and 20 minutes from Hyde Park, which is where you Chicago is. So I said, okay, well, this is, this can't be that bad, right? I don't have to actually live in South Bend. Um, and Notre Dame is a phenomenal institution. I mean, it's so resource rich. The students are brilliant. Um, and so it's really idyllic in terms of what kind of engagement you get, you know. Um, so I went out there. I lived in, I moved to Hyde Park. I commuted twice a week, uh, you know, seven months a year to South Bend. And I really loved it. But what I was focused on at the time was citizenship theory, which is really about access to entitlement. How people experience being American um, in different ways based upon their subject position, based upon their gender, their race, rural, suburban education level, um, a whole range of things. And, um, and I was focused a great deal on welfare reform and criminal justice reform. And so I was doing this multidisciplinary approach of law, literature, and political science. And I started to feel like as brilliant as my students were, and as much as I enjoyed them, that there was just more to be done in the world, you know, that teaching, you know, two seminars a term of 20 something students each you know, is that really um, driving the change that I think that I'm capable of? And so um, shortly after Obama became president, I left Notre Dame and, uh, and took a job with the new governor of um, Illinois. Um, he became governor uh, right after Blagojevich was impeached. Um, so it was fun times. There's never a dull day, I say, in, in, in Chicago. So um so I became deputy chief of staff to the governor of Illinois, which was pretty awesome. Some of our attendees may be wondering, how do you go from faculty member at Notre Dame 
to the governor's office in the state of Illinois. That's not a, a direct line for, for most people. Yeah, I think one, you'll see that my career is full of these kinds of interesting lines, but um, I started doing public policy consulting while I was still at Notre Dame. And so I was really invested in the criminal justice reform community. And so I happened to meet uh, the governor at an event. And, you know, in a kind of typical academic way, I started giving him a lot of unsolicited advice about what he should be doing <laughs> around a range of policy areas uh, since he was quote unquote new. And, um, and oddly enough, I, I mean, I'm sure I, the record's like, I'm like, he must've been thinking, who is this woman telling me what to do? But he called me a few days later and wanted to keep talking. And so, you know, that conversation evolved into this role. But what I think is so cool is that because he was new, he was just really interested in the ideas, right? And driving the change. And so, and in Chicago, which is so very political, I think that he found it to be a real value add to have someone that no one sent, so to speak, right? Um, and so I ended up, um, you know, profoundly in a situation where I go from being a, you know, yeah, professor in the English department to someone who's now responsible for the Department of Corrections, Juvenile Justice, uh, child and family services, human services. I had the largest agencies, uh, human rights, and um, in combined, the budgets were just over $8 billion. So uh, you go from teaching 80 students a year to running an $8 billion portfolio, um, you know, that helps, you know, the state's 13 million residents. And so you get real immediate satisfaction and you can make a decision on a Tuesday that has tremendous impact in the lives of thousands of people um, immediately, you know? When we think about professors, you know, academic pursuit, right? There can be practical elements to it. You mentioned the things that you were curious about and that you were researching and directly relates to people's lives, how they're experiencing uh, this country, uh, their citizenship in this country, access to entitlement. Um, but the work that you're doing, the governor's office, has this decidedly practical bend to it, right? You're implementing policy and, and reaching people in that way. What was it like to make that transition? Uh, was seamless? Anything you learned along the way? Yeah, it was seamless because it was really where I was focused. I mean, I think the reason why I left academia the first time is because I was so tired of theorizing around things and talking about things. I wanted to be doing things, right? I wanted to make sure that the work I did have practical implication for people in their everyday lives. And so what I'll say is that you realize very quickly that what you know in theory, what the best policies might say, don't translate into practice, you know, seamlessly, right? And so all politics on a certain level are local. And so understanding the different constituent groups, I think it becomes a real um, training ground for life for corporate America as well, because it's crucial that for whoever, um, whoever is opposing your point of view, that you need to understand why. It's not just to sort of try to win them over or try to best them. It's, it's, it's extremely important to understand everyone's point of view is valid. And you may learn something about what you're driving when you find out who the people are who oppose it and why. And so um, all legislation depends upon addressing all of those factors to get the votes, right? Um, to get the thing done. And so um, I'll just give you a quick example is that 
one of the things that we know in criminal justice is that, you know, there's no real transformation in a positive way that happens with incarcerating someone. It's really a kind of holding place. And whatever the underlying issues are that cause the person to do the thing that got them in prison isn't being addressed. And yet the costs of holding them there are tremendous. So the better approach would be to give them the treatments and the services and supports they need that cause them to, to do the thing. And it's far less expensive to do it in a community-based setting. So to me, it was a no-brainer. Like we should be shifting into community-based settings for nonviolent offenders around some of these issues. But what you learn is that the places where the, the prisons are, um, which sadly you find that you've got overwhelmingly black and brown people incarcerated and the prisons are in communities that are overwhelmingly white. And so these people are dependent upon this prison for their jobs, right? Like the prison employs like 95% of the people in that town and they've got children to feed and they've got mortgages and so forth. And so you can see their earnest um, opposition to the change because while it may benefit the people who are incarcerated, they're thinking about feeding their own family. And so, you know, it's not for nothing, right? So you have to figure out how do you bridge that gap? And those are the kinds of wicked problems that intrigue me and that I get really excited about. You know, I can easily pull multiple all-nighters thinking about how to solve problems like that. So after your time in the governor's office in the state of Illinois, you launched a social impact fund. Um, how did you decide that was going to be your next step? So I remember um, when I was sort of coming out of college, people would ask me questions like, well, what's your five-year plan and what's your 10-year plan? And I absolutely don't believe in those things anymore. I feel like every experience I have changes me, which then dictates, you know, how I might think about my future. And so what I learned is how much the um, work really depends upon um, partnerships, right? that uh, public-private partnerships in particular. And so what I wanted to do was taking what I knew about the needs of people across, um, you know, the fifth largest state in, in the um, country and think about how to better target the resources of corporate America. And those are both the financial resources as well as the intellectual resources. Um, one of the things that you'll find is that, you know, in the, in the uh, era of um, pension reform, and all of the, you know, built up um, financial problems that we have relative to that in the cuts that come in the aftermath, some of the first things to go are research. Some of the first things to go are analysis because there are certain core things that can't go. And so you have a government that's well situated in terms of the data it has about its populace and about the offices and reach it has, but maybe not the kind of, um, intellectual rigor analysis and research to best figure out how to deploy its resources. And so that's an excellent opportunity, I think, for corporate America. And so, um, you know, I, you see so many companies that do these sort of global days of service. And, um, and I find that a poor, you know, utilization of their, um, of their intellectual resources and of their financial resources. Everybody comes out and maybe they build a playground or they paint a fence or a wall, but so many organizations could use that intellectual and skill-based support. And so if 10,000 people come out for a day from Citibank or wherever that is, uh, imagine if you could just deploy them where 
each of them came out for a day, but on a Friday. And, you know, you could have 20 people each Friday at XYZ organization, and you could adopt 15 organizations with the same number of people out for a day, right? And that they could have a real value add in terms of the resources to make impact. And that's really the kind of scenario that led to me developing this nonprofit class um, that I've just finished teaching because how can we, um, it becomes a win-win. The students have collected all of this information and strategy and finance and marketing, et cetera, to go out into the world. And yet um, there's not a huge difference between a nonprofit organization and a for-profit organization, except for the financial underpinnings. So they get to practice what they've learned and see how they can solve problems while the organization gets this additional, you know, human and intellectual resource to get them over the hump of some things that they are, um, you know, lacking because of minimal resources. So that was really the, the idea between the social impact fund, the, uh, pulling together a pile of corporations where they get to pool their resources. They're all giving us, you talked to Greg Case, the CEO of Aon, and he's saying, I'm giving out hundreds of millions of dollars to things that sound really important, but I have no idea if it's making a difference. And, you know, they're not going to put together a team of people to assess that. You know what I mean? They're running an insurance company. And so in pooling it, my team would uh, fund programs and assess them and see where there was real impact. So then the corporations know where and how to double down. And at the same time, we're building capacity in the organizations and helping them understand um, maybe the program that they're doing has 10 components to it, but maybe they find that only six of them are driving the change. And the other four aren't having much impact. And by dropping those, they can redeploy the resources somewhere else, right? So how do we, you know, provide that sort of win-win? And, um, and it was a really gratifying experience. And we had some phenomenal people. I mean, my board, um, Fortune 100 CEOs, I had the, um, at the time, the CEO of McDonald's, Don Thompson, who is a phenomenal individual. And he's now um, running um, uh, Cleveland Associates, which does a lot of food tech and brought Beyond Meat to the fore. Um, I had the CEO of Exelon. Uh, the CEO of Mesero, uh, the CEO of Allstate. And so you could see that these are really important things to these global companies. And, um, and it's exciting to think about the ability to use both the intellectual, financial, and human resources to drive um, change. Well, I'm looking at the Q&A, and we started to get some questions, as is always the case with these office hour sessions. And one of the questions relates to leaders using their organizational platform uh, to drive political change, social change. To, you know, we live in an era where I think this is an expectation uh, of companies and, and leaders. You know, How do you feel about what's happening? And we had an early office hours conversation uh, with Ed Freeman, who talked about the importance of, yes, profit must be present, but also purpose. Um, and and I, w I imagine, Tony, you have some, some thoughts uh, on this particular topic. Yeah, I mean, that's really um, what my ESG course is about. Absolutely, I think that corporations are responsible to their publics, right? And there's no one way to do it. Um, I think that 
some corporations are in a position with CEOs to speak out about particular issues, and they should, right? So when I say particular issues, whether it's climate change or whether it's homelessness or what happened to you, there are just global issues that are important to everyone. But I think that all companies can start with the issues that are connected to the work that they do. And so I was just speaking the other day to the president of Unilever Foods, and you know they're really invested in both the healthiness of the foods that they create, supporting the farmers, thinking about the waste. And I think that all of those things become crucial and central in how they operate their business. And that you'll find that the consumers are super interested in seeing those kinds of impacts. And so if you can choose between, I don't know, Coke and Pepsi, um, and one of them is doing really good work and the other isn't, it becomes really easy to say, I'm going to you know, drink this beverage, although I don't think you should drink sugary beverages. So that's probably not the best example, but, um, but you know, it's that people have choices and they're really leading um, their, their dollars are following their thought process in terms of seeing um, how the concern is there. You know, we just have this wonder, right? And, um, and if we utilize all the resources, if we don't care about our fellow person, if we don't sort of think about how we can do good and do well, and I'm by no means um, naive about we're still here to make money. And, I, and I'm not ever suggesting that people do things that undermine their ability to be profitable. But I think that it's um, not very difficult in many instances to find opportunities to deploy, just like the example I gave in terms of sending out your employees to be skills-based support versus a one-off, right, on a particular day. That doesn't cost you any more. And so I'm very much interested right now. I do some consulting in ESG and I've been working with some private equity portfolio companies. And a big part of it for me is helping them think about how they can be impactful, um, you know, through the low hanging fruit just to get started. Right. And then how you sort of build a longer plan, a three year plan, a five year plan to make some adjustments. And so you'll see that a lot of these companies have goals where they say we'll hit this target in two years and then this better target in five years. Well, one of the things that's come up in the Q&A, but I'm also curious about knowing a little bit about the, the work that you've done, Social Impact Fund you started, it, is you would target high-performing non-profit organizations. Um, how do you figure out, this is maybe a little bit of a, um, a novice question, but how, how do you figure out, um, you know, this is a high-performing non-profit organization. This is where we want to, to make an investment. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a screening process for everything. We call them assessment instruments. And so um, you deploy an assessment instrument and you think about what kinds of things you want to um, assess. And so part of it is that, are you doing work that has some basis in evidence, right? That you've used some kind of a model that's demonstrating impact and you're deploying that. Do you have um, a culture or an organization that is a learning organization so that the staff and leadership are primed to make adjustments as necessary. Um, Are you in a position to collect data? Do you already collect data? Because some of the things, I mean, sometimes data becomes a a dirty word where people think that, oh, those are the people who have nothing to do with what's happening in the communities and on the ground come up with to make things more difficult for us. But, you know, an example I like to give is that when you collect data about what's going on who's coming to the program, when they're coming, how long they're staying. Not only does it help you to understand what impact you're having, 
But you might also find that um, attendance is always highest on Wednesdays. And Wednesdays are the days that you guys have pizza. And so food insecurity is a major issue. And if you realize that the only thing preventing people from showing up to get some much needed service like cognitive behavioral therapy or what have you, is that there's some food there, then by all means, you need to make sure that you add that to your budget and, and put that in your narrative to your funders about how important that is as part of your program. Um, by the same token, you might find that um, people only come when there's an opportunity for childcare. So there are some really practical aspects of data collection that are crucial to running your program in the best possible way but also just in learning in a pre-post way. So if you say that your mentoring program is meant to improve grades, well, let's get the report cards before they started. And then let's get the report cards after the program and see if there's any difference, right? And sometimes you also find that there are um, unexpected outcomes. I, I ran a, um, when we had stimulus funds um, back, you know, when Obama was president and the, the governor's office, we used a, uh, we put together a program for um, transitional jobs and you had to be TANF eligible. And there's such a bad narrative about people who um, are on TANF and that, you know, they're lazy or what have you. And what you found was that it was not required, but so many people applied for the job program, a six month job that didn't have to because it wasn't gonna impact their TANF check. And we had to expand it. So we ended up having 28,000 people in a transitional jobs program. And oftentimes you see that the thing that's preventing people from getting out is that they don't have the opportunity to get experience. We live in a society where so many jobs are the result of relationships. And you live in a community and come up in a way where none of your relationships are positioned to help you. So people getting six months of work now have something to put on a resume to get another job, but, and which is what we hope. We hope that people would then want to hire them full-time once they experience working with them to some percent, right? But what came out of that that we had no um, anticipation of was that 10% of the people who participated um, went back to school. So it's so exciting to think that they could then see a path for themselves, right? That, oh, I'm in this job. Maybe I see this job above me and I realize that that might require a certificate or an associate's degree or whatever, but now I have a goal because how can I dream it if I can't see it, right? And so then going back to do what's necessary to get there. So I think that um, the combination of not just the bringing the skills in, but making people in positions of power, whether it's corporate or government, get closer to the ground of what's going on helps them be better supporters of um, the experiences of a wider swath of people. All right. So we talked about your work in Chicago with your social impact fund, and you're here today on this session as a, as a Darden faculty member. How, how do you get from Chicago uh, to, well, you're calling in from the, the DC area, but between Charlottesville and the Washington DC area, working with Darden students. Yeah. Well, you know, I, um, I was ready for change. I didn't quite know what exactly. I was actually thinking that I wanted to go in-house corporate around ESG. Um, and I definitely wanted to be back on the East Coast because I'm from Philadelphia, right? So, um, but I got a call, you know, I was entertaining a, a range of different things, but I got a call 
um, from um, the president's office that, you know, they have a search team there and um, introduced this idea, you know, coming to Darden, which had never crossed my mind. Um, and so, I don't know, I went through the process and I met the people and, and I was like, this is the best of all worlds because on one hand, I get to work with, um, you know, brilliant people who are in a corporate setting uh, in the MBA program. I also get to work with awesome companies in the exec ed program that we have. Um, and there's a range of problems that solve helping um, corporations reach goals that they have, whether it's around ESG or strategy or DEI or what have you. Um, I get to do some consulting, which is what I'm doing with these private equity companies around ESG. Um, and I get to do some cool things around writing. Um, I've been writing some cases. I'm in the middle of a case on governance right now. Um, and so um, I couldn't have imagined a better possibility for myself than the one that turned up here. So um, that's why I say you can't really plan and say what my five-year plan is because you just don't know until it hits you. Are you ever surprised that you're now on a business school faculty, if you consider sort of the arc of things from PhD and English Lit to, to where you are today? Um, so I'm more surprised that it didn't, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> because, um, you know, the reason why I left Notre Dame was because Notre Dame is a lovely place and there are wonderful people there. But I just felt frustrated that I wasn't actively involved in the world, right? Like I need to roll my sleeves up and be in there. I really like working with companies. And um, and so there wasn't really that option in being in the humanities, uh, you know, in the English department. And so now this balancing out, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm talking to the president of Unilever. I'm talking to the CEO of Sands Capital. I'm talking to um, the head of um, Latin Equity. I'm talking to all of these different corporate people about the work and their problems. And I'll say that I learned that I really loved this when I was um, at Get in Chicago because of the, not just the CEOs that were on my board, but all the CEOs that were partners in the endeavor. And so you don't just talk about that work, but you talk about the issues that they're up against. They're having some trouble with some legislation and, you know, you're giving them advice about that or they're having some trouble on, you know, a range of things. And so, um, so it's just work that I, I truly enjoy. I like the problem solving. I want to stay with some of the consulting that you're doing right now. Um, you mentioned that you're doing this ESG-related consulting with these private equity firms. We have a question here in the Q&A that you see more and more firms uh, looking at you know, ESG as they're making these kind of investment decisions. Do you feel like you know, this, is, this trend is going to continue or do you feel like this is the uh, sort of the flavor, flavor of the month? Parts definitely continue. I know there are some people who like this a lot, but I think that one of the things you find is that um, we have, um, you know, some some of the leadership in corporate America has aged right tremendously, and I think that you know because it wasn't an issue, you know, for so long for them, there's some people who just don't take it as seriously. But one, you find that the SEC is getting far more invested in um, ESG, and so that there's sort of some clear regulatory issues. Two, as I've already pointed out earlier in the conversation, consumers are demanding it. And so if you have any kind of a consumer products um, company, you can't avoid it. Um, three, if you make missteps, the, um, you know, the, the, the response to that can be highly problematic. I mean, we've seen what's happened to a bunch of companies in terms of 
um, whether it's Boeing um, or Volkswagen and their emissions or, you know, just whatever that you can have significant impact on your corporate value on your stock price. Uh, so it's not to be taken lightly. Um, secondly, I think that just as humanists, um, CEOs realize that there's more for them to do, right? I think that, you know, for all of us, there's a feeling that, I shouldn't say for all of us, but for many of us, there's a feeling that for whom much is given, much is required. And so um, when there's an opportunity to do good and do well, it seems like a no-brainer, right? And so can you check and see that your pricing is such that you're not gouging people? Can you think more in a design way? We've got a phenomenal um, faculty member, Jean Lipka, who focuses on design thinking. And have you thought about even just the design of your systems to make sure that they're as consumer friendly as possible? Um, I mean, of course, we still have, you know, the cable company that'll give you a, a time frame of one to five as if, you know, they're just people sitting at home. Well, now we're sitting at home, of course. Um, but that, you know, previously, if you were just sitting at home waiting to take that, is that really the most efficient process? And so there's a lot of efficiencies um, that one can do. There's a lot of risk management, which is something that I'm particularly focused on. And then there's a lot, um, you know, about culture. Uh, you know, there is a saying that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I 100% see that. Um, I think that culture eats strategy for breakfast and it eats governance for lunch. So um, if you don't have a culture in place that allows proper communication, that is transparent, um, that people are really bought into the mission and plans and goals, things won't get done down there, you know, two and three tiers down. Like you can't um, manage people at that hypervigilant level and it's just not possible. So you have to have the buy-in. And I'm a huge believer in making sure that the culture is at the base of it all or you're building, you know, a, a plan on sand, right? So, um, so yeah, so I really love that work. Um, I love the very um, particularity of it in that there's no one size fits all. And so what is this company best positioned to do? What's the low hanging fruit for this company? What are some of the changes that'll yield the best ROI for this particular company, right? I mean, I think that there's some base things that you can do to assess where you are that we can sort of universalize. And I'm thinking about some of that right now um, and just some things to sort of get them going. But even the difference between the U.S. and Europe and, um, you know, sort of assessing, you know, which kind of approach you're taking so that you know what rules to follow. Uh, I'm taking a group of students in March to Israel, and um, I'm pumped about that because Israel is doing so many exciting things in food tech, uh, in tech across the board, but also around ESG and especially this double bottom line piece. There's a great project around water that's going on. There's some great work in terms of um, lower sugar foods for people who are diabetic, but that more and more of us are caring about lower sugar foods anyway. And so that it's not just cardboard, right? It tastes good as well. Um, and so there's a lot in the approach. Um, there's an organization, Patango, in terms of how they screen their investments around it. And then also they have a really great scoring mechanism about how they sort of assess companies and where their process is. And so um, I think that they've been super forward thinking about it, and it'll be a great opportunity for students to just see a different model, right, in terms of approach. Well, we began this conversation by talking about 
what you're teaching. And, and I want to come back to the classes uh, that you led or currently leading here at the Darden School. Um, I think the class that we've gotten several questions about in the Q&A, perhaps no surprise, since you've done an interview with Sean Carr on, on one of the other Darden podcasts okay. about it. Um, but is your Hamilton-inspired uh, class getting in the room where it happens? Now, before we get into the substance of the class, just how big of a Hamilton fan are you? Oh my gosh. I love Hamilton. I've probably seen it. Uh, I saw it in the theater probably four or five times. Um, you know, the soundtrack was my workout music for a long time back when I used to work out. Um, and so, you know, it's just such a lo- I love the, um, there's just so much I love about it, but I love the way that it made history interesting to students, right? To younger students. I love the way that it mixes the national narrative with updated realities about it, the commentary about immigration, the diversity of the cast. Um, I love the way that it digs deep into the hip hop archives. And if you don't listen to it, it'll go right over your head. And so it's operating on so many different levels so that a wide swath of people can enjoy it. And some people can you know, process some things and others other things, but that across the board, there's just joy, right? So uh, I think it's just such a miraculous, um, miraculous show. Agreed, incredible. Uh, it's it's a tough thing to try to top if you're Lin Manuel Miranda. I don't. I, I I mean, he's got a lot of things going on. Very very talented person, but uh, there is really only one Hamilton. I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, we'll, I we shall see. like musicals, so that's saying something too. Like. I'm like a checkoff girl, you know what I mean? And it's like, so for me to even be at a musical, I'm like, what? So anyway. Well, let's talk about the class. So what is that class all about? Yeah. So you know what? Um, coming out of Chicago and like I said, working with so many CEOs, you know, there's a lot that goes on that's, um, you know, sort of pre-dates um, the work itself, right? And so we live in a society, and I said this, like, you know, that the governor was looking for someone that no one sent. Um, there's a huge percentage, practically 90% of jobs are because of relationships versus, and there's data out there that shows this, versus getting it through the classifieds. And so it struck me that, you know, well, what if you don't have the relationship? What if you're not already in the club, right? And I think that particularly for women and people of color, this becomes an issue, Um you know, I saw something up close and personal a couple of years ago where uh, a friend of mine who's a CEO um, had been, you know, dealing with an issue where an employee, I was, it was annual review time, and the employee, um, the CEO said, thought that they were better than they were. And I thought to myself, well, how does that happen? And I said, let me just take a guess. The employee who thought that they were better than they were was a person of color. And their manager was white. And the CEO said, how'd you know? And I said, I think that there's some major communication issues. And so what I can see is that um, something happens and you go out for drinks, play golf with, you know, hang out with Joe. And Joe screws up at work. And you go to Joe and you say, Joe, dude, you know, you did this, that, and the other. That was wrong. You know, don't do that anymore. And Joe's like, oh, cool, my bad. I'll fix that. But then there is John, and you don't really know John. Um, John does his thing, he does his work, whatever, but you don't hang with him, and John does something amiss, and so you don't really feel comfortable saying, John, you screwed up. 
And so it's the first quarter and John sort of doesn't get the full feedback that would make him a better person because there's a discomfort there. And then it's the end of the year and John gets his performance review and he's hearing or seeing that he's not the stellar person. And so I am not going to criticize the supervisor because of their discomfort, but I'm going to put that fact there that this is a normative thing that happens across the board. And that needs to be changed on this culture piece that I've already talked about, right? So I believe in this system, systemic change that needs to take place at companies where we get better communication, better collaboration, and open up some of these issues. But in the meantime, how's that helping John waiting for this company to get their culture situation together? And so part of it is that how do you connect with people, build relationships, map the right ones? Carla Harris has this phenomenal TED Talk that I highly recommend. Um, and what's the title of it? Uh, I forget. It's like, but if you just Google Carla Harris and it's about mentoring, the difference between mentors and sponsors. And she's basically talking about a sponsor is someone who takes your paper into the room, who represents you when you're not there, who has your back and advocates for you. And oftentimes women and people of color in situations where overwhelmingly the men are the ones in leadership, they're not getting those kinds of um, connects um, and processes in place. And so for them to learn processes to facilitate that for themselves in the short term, I think is super important. There is something I always refer to the meeting before the meeting, right? And I tell people, you know, there's always a meeting before the meeting. And if you weren't in the meeting before the meeting, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means you weren't invited and you can't ask to be invited. And that's what the Hamilton thing is, right? We all know that, um, you know, that Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson met together and, you know, poor, poor <laughs> Burr isn't in the room where it happens, right? And so all these things are taking place and Burr is going, I want to be in the room where it happens. And I'm saying, I want to see more diverse people in the room where it happens and how do we facilitate that process? So that's the sort of big picture of it. And we go through strategies. There's a wonderful book that I highly recommend by Carolyn Webb, and it's called How to Have a Good Day. And so one of the things that we start with in this class is really brain science. And it's this idea about, um, which is also based upon a bit of Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, which won the Nobel. And that is the way our brains work. And so understanding some of the things about our own brain helps us understand how we best perform and also how to engage with people and how they're likely to respond to us. And so this is sort of undeniable, which also embeds in there the, the, the fast part of our brain is doing the most work because it can cover so much more. But the slow part of our brain, which is really detailed and focused, which we ideally like to do the most, it can only hold so much, three or four things at most. So when you get more than three or four things in, which of course we all do, and the fast kicks in, that's where things happen like unconscious bias, um, like um, confirmation bias, um, these range of things. And so um, a few years back, um, I was moderating a conversation at the Economic Club in Chicago, and it was about unconscious bias. And it was interesting because there were some people saying, well, they don't have unconscious bias. And, and so what you learn if you do the reading is that um, the only way to not have unconscious bias is to not have a brain. <laughs> so I think people should stop saying that. Uh, so, so, 
it's just, we can't help it. It's just there. And so working through some of the tools to mediate that so that we can be better off going forward is a huge part of what we do in this class as well. And you've also recently revamped the curriculum for the ethics through literature course. You want to talk a little bit about that? I know uh, as a, I guess a PhD in, in literature, I'm sure that's, that's near and dear to your heart as you, as you think about putting that syllabus together. Yeah, you know, um, Ed Freeman, this is Ed Freeman's class, and he was gracious enough um, to bequeath it to me this year. And so those are some really big shoes to fill. And um, I'm, I'm one so grateful to him for, for passing it along to me. And Ed just has a certain kind of um, gravitas where I feel like everything he does just is magic, right? So, um, so I wanted to, you know, do some work to make the class more my own. And, um, and so I did change the readings. And the other thing that I wanted to do with the, the readings is I wanted to make sure that they were as diverse as they could be. And so um, as a rule, I sort of came up with a bunch of texts and then I, I audited my text that I said, you know, I want to make sure that it's 50%, you know, men, 50% women. Um, and then from there, breaking it down where um, we have Ghanaian writers, we have um, um, Russian writers, we have um, Palestinian writers. Uh, and so how can we start to change the narrative? When we think about ethics, a lot of it is also in terms of culture of nation. So people don't react to the same behaviors in the same way because of that background. And so we recognize that there's no one way of looking at a thing. So how can we have a common response to a situation when we don't have common backgrounds and common experiences? And then how can we not project judgment on other people um, because they don't have the same background experiences as we do. So a lot of it is about trying to have a bit more of a 360 degree look at ethical dilemmas. Um, in what instance would this be okay? For what kind of person? Um, is this a universal issue that we can codify? Uh, so there's that part. And um, in thinking through when is it okay to be 100% about our own self-interest? Um, to what extent are we responsible for other people? I mean, these aren't easy questions, right? They don't have simple, straightforward answers. And it's the talking through it um, that makes a difference. And so the group of students that I had this term were really just outstanding. They, uh, they were such a joy to, um, to come, you know, be with every week. Uh, and hear them sort of process through some of these things. And also I think that um, what's, what's additionally cool about doing it, because you really, you think about, you know, Darden is a huge case method school, right? And, um, but really you're thinking about the literature as a case. And it's interesting to read and think about sometimes the text as well as the subtext, right? and looking for what does this mean and the signals. And so then you say to the students, I mean, imagine if we put this much energy into listening and reading each other. You know, when someone says, oh, that's fine. You know, does the tone of their voice really suggest it's fine? Are you just looking for 
checkbox affirmation that what you're doing isn't problematic when you kind of know that it is? Um, is there an opportunity to rethink, you know, your engagement? And so it becomes a course about ethics, but also one about communication, collaboration, and community, right? Well, recognize that we've just got a few more minutes left, but I want to make sure we also talk about your course, Who Streets ESG Strategies for Corporate America, essentially Corporate America, Wall Street to Main Street. I, I butchered the yeah. title. It's a Everybody long please. title. It's a long title. We need to shorten this title. Um, but it's it's really so. So back to your original question of, you know, is this just like a fly by night thing, this ESG? Um, I want to sort of settle that, you know, in this class. And what we're doing is we'll have a lot of um, corporate leaders come into the class and talk about how ESG impacts the work that they do. And so it's going to be important for the students to see whether it's finance, consumer products, tech, et cetera. Um, and so, um, you know, what does it mean to sort of create shared value, uh, strategic assessment? Um, how do you have this sort of double bottom line win? How do you assess what you're doing? And, you know, we're going to have Don Thompson from Cleveland come in. And so for Don, I mean, Don's in such a primary position because looking at ESG from the point of view of a global corporation like McDonald's, and then looking at ESG as an investor in food tech and these double bottom line companies and how they're wielding it. And so two different kinds of companies, even though they're in the same industry, two different sizes, and what do those approaches look like, right? Um, I've got, uh, from a governance point of view, I'm gonna have John Rogers, the CEO of Aerial Investments, who is on the board of McDonald's, on the board of Nike, on the board of um, uh, the New York Times. And so to think about how do you govern a company, what are those skills, what is that lens that comes in when you think about ESG and those ways. Um, and then, you know, one of my favorites also is Richard Edelman, who is the CEO of Edelman, um, you know, the, the home, the largest, you know, PR firm in the world, they do this um, truth um, piece, a trust barometer. And every year they survey a gazillion people. And it's interesting to see how we think about trust and what group we trust the most. One year it'll be government. Another year it'll be um, corporations. Another year, we always trust academics. Just, just you know, the data says that, right? So, um but anyway, so it's funny, um, but he's going to talk about some of that, especially, and, you know, Edelman worked on the Volkswagen um, problem. They worked on Starbucks. They worked on a lot of these wicked problems that are within ESG. So getting it from his crisis management lens, but also the Trust Institute piece. So we're going to have some phenomenal guests come in. We're going to get into some um, actual cases um, of real issues and see what they're dealing with. And so it's going to be a balance of live cases from individuals and reading cases and um, and just being better prepared to um, to talk about the work and to do the work when they're out there in the world. Well, Tony, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. Um, one last question for you. Uh, covered a lot of ground here on, on uh, this session of Office Hours. I wonder if you have a final piece of advice, something you'd like to leave our attendees with, something to go forth into the world with. 
Well, can they tell that I've had three cups of coffee? <laughs> and so uh, the one tip I'll give you is that coffee is free at Darden. So that's a bonus for coming. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess if I'd say a tip, it's, it's really to, um, to connect with people, to make sure that you're connecting with and communicating with people who have altogether different experiences than you do, because it will help you test out some of your theories it will expand your relationship universe for opportunities. Um, it will really help you to um, have a better, clearer understanding of the world. And um, there's one thing just to do is just to make sure that you're connecting with people and you're connecting with diverse people. Eating alone is for chumps. Don't do it twice a week, at least I'd say meet people for lunch out, right? Because that's a maximum way of making use of your time. You've got to eat anyway and connect. So connect, connect, connect. Don't eat lunch alone. All right. Tony, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure um, catching up with you here, learning more about your story. This was one that uh, I think we all learned a lot. So thank you so much for, for sharing. And that was my interview with Professor Tony Irving, Professor of Practice here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.